future that decides. There was just this kind of outpouring of, of music, and they're, they're very beautiful versions, you know, mainly acoustic. Some of them have some bass and some drums from Ringo on them. You know, he had hit a really rich seam of songwriting form by that point. It, it was a continuation of Here Comes the Sun, something. He was really peaking, I suppose. The material was very much in shape. Anything you want to change or say? This week's one there is Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. So let's see. We, we got a couple things going on here. First off, picking up from last week, we did get the final confirmation of the Let It Be box for October the 15th. It's a coming, although I keep reading, well, it's this and it's this. You know, there, there's still some confusion as to, or perhaps disappointment, <laughs> as to what has occurred here because I think there was an expectation that somehow we would get more of the rooftop concerts and, and it doesn't appear like we are on this set. You look at this track list, this almost just serves as confirmation of come January, we are getting a soundtrack to the Peter Jackson version of Get Back. That hasn't been confirmed, has it? No, no, it hadn't been confirmed, but originally this has started out as a eight or nine disc extravaganza and then when the movie became a six-hour tv thing they cut it back right yeah there's just something about this project that uh is that way you know the the original michael lindsey hogg cut was like four hours and then they got slashed up and uh so now it's gonna be a movie and now it's a six-hour Disney thing. So. It's the TV miniseries that became a movie that became a TV miniseries. <laughs> the Beatles always breaking ground. <laughs> but they did release a couple teasers here. The first is Let It Be, the song, and we get a real feel for what Giles did to Spectre. Right. The band is bought up, but he's still left in a lot of those sort of specterizations, you know, particularly things like the endless echo on Ringo's cymbals. Broken hearted people. Right. And then Ringo's toms and stuff that was added to it later. But all in all, I'm actually pretty happy with it. And if the rest of the remixed album is in that vein, good on them. <laughs> right. There's something about the way this feels that is just. Let it be <laughs> the way this project has always been. My wife and I were talking about it and it was kind of this thing of, well, wasn't let it be considered kind of like the worst, most disappointing album. And I was like, well, I think that was the thought at the time, but when you consider it has two of us and across the universe and let it be and get back and for you blue, it's not really a bad album. <laughs> well, and it had three hit singles on it. Right. You know, get back, let it be in Long and Winding Road. So I'm still interested to hear Long and Winding Road. Yeah, we get just the beginning of it. You know, they put out like a, a 90 second teaser and you can just hear the start of the orchestra coming in. And I think Giles did indeed take Paul's advice. The girl singers and the, the harps and all that are going to be scaled way back. They'll be there, but they'll be scaled way back. The long and winding road. 
Well, I will enjoy that. <laughs> For sure. The other two songs they released, uh, we got uh, the rooftop version of Don't Let Me Down, which is nice. I mean, it's mixed as a live recording. Right. John doing the, the gobbledygook vocals because he can't read the piece of paper that's in front of him. That Kevin was holding. I do like the fact that we'll have a version with George's harmony. Yeah, and then the Glenn Johns version of Free You Blue, which is like, well, I guess other than the fact that you had to have a George song, so you put out a Paula John and a George song, that wasn't necessarily the most inspiring of uh, songs to be putting out from the Glenn Johns session. Yeah, but he doesn't have a whole lot to choose from. Yeah, and in fact, this whole idea that the fifth disc is an EP... I can see why a lot of people are kind of, well, why are you doing that? Yes. It, it makes sense in the vinyl set, I guess. That kind of decision, I, I don't quite understand. But I'm sure as they were sitting around the kitchen table, they have a reason to do five songs on a CD. Well, and, and I think it's just because they don't care that it's five songs on a CD. It's like, oh, well, vi- vinyl sales are catching up again, so we'll do something that makes sense on vinyl. And it kind of makes sense on vinyl, you know. Let it be that big EP album. Yeah, with all this, they didn't include You Know My Name. That's the other question. Where is that? Yeah, it should be there. I've read people say, well, it was recorded back in 67. But it was part of that project. You know, John worked on it, and and they worked on it in 69. So it's kind of of that era. It was the B-side to Let It Be. I mean, it was part of that single. So, oh, well. Anyway, so that's what's going on with that. We got the list of the uh, lyrics that Paul's putting in his book, and it's a very interesting list. It is. um, You know, he covers a lot of stuff, some beautiful things there. I think even for his own feeling, sometimes he doesn't rate himself as a lyricist, but, you know, he's got some really great lyrics. He split it up pretty evenly between... Beatles stuff and the wing slash solo stuff, which is nice. Right. I did make a note that he included Say, 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 which he wrote with Michael Jackson, but didn't include any of the stuff that he did with Elvis Costello. And there were some really good lyrics to that. Yeah, and they seem to have worked through their problems, but you know maybe there's still some issue between them on the material because Elvis is still not real happy with the way that whole thing ended up. Although he did come out and say that the flowers box was well done and that he liked the demos that came out. I put together uh, a CD of, I think it's about 25 songs that they did together, demos and unrecorded stuff, but it's a really good block of work. 20 Fine Fingers, that's a great song. I, I really wish one of them would do it, you know? Yeah. We'd do an, a, a real studio version of it. Yeah. So sad to hear about Charlie Watts, the Stone Straw, dying. Um, he was a lovely guy, and um, I, I knew he was ill, but I didn't know uh, it was this ill. So uh, lots of love to his family. Um, his wife and kids and his extended family and uh, condolences to the Stones. This would be a huge blow to them because Charlie was a rock um, and a fantastic drummer, steady as a rock. Anyway, so love, love you, Charlie. I always loved you. Beautiful man and great condolences and sympathies. To his family. And then the other thing that's hopefully not going to become a, a weekly feature here, um, Charlie Watts passed on. Yes, that's the way life works, and it's, but it's sad. And, and, you know, I really don't see how the, the Stones would continue as producing mu- new music because, you know, I've heard Keith say that even with the people who have come in and played in Charlie's place, you know, are copying what he did. Steve Jordan is very much imitating Charlie Watts from what I've heard. Right. So I've had a, a week of listening to solo tracks and pretty great. His, his feel is uh, 
pretty fantastic. Ringo said that uh, he felt like Charlie really kept that band together, and that he uh, that Ringo had a much easier job than Charlie. <laughs> Well, he didn't have Mick Jagger out in front of him, for sure. (laughs) Right. From drummer Ringo Starr, God bless Charlie Watts. We're going to miss you, man. Peace and love to the family. And then that video that Paul put out, that's not something that he usually does. I mean, you you could see he he really felt it. it. You know, it was Paul almost like he'd just woken up. And he was in, yeah. you know, a t-shirt and like sweatpants or something and just sitting on the steps outside his house. And it's not what you expect out of Paul. Uh, he, it was very heartfelt. I agree. So, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to prepare ourselves for more of this because they are all old men. They're into their 70s and 80s. I yes. Mean, Whatever's left of the 60s are, are slipping away pretty quickly here. Yeah. Well, now we can go around and be spiritual again, right? <laughs> On that happy note, <laughs> uh, rest in peace, Charlie Watts, as I like to say. So we're picking up with the day one demos from All Things Must Pass. Yes. It's a pretty good record. They've got great versions of the songs you know and a good helping of songs you don't. I noticed that in the two days that he spent demoing that 13 songs didn't make the cut. And that's an album in itself. You're including Sour Milk Sea on there, I guess. I did. Do you feel like it wasn't really a serious take? I almost think that he was just playing it because it's like, well, what else do I have? Okay, here's the last song I have. The other thing is Ringo and Klaus knew it. Right. So what more can I play? I have to wear out Phil Spector. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Although another thing that I noticed about that is that based on Jackie Lomax's version, that George took liberties with the melody. He changed the feeling of the melody around. Which he would do. Not guilty, his version. The melody's a bit different than what he did with the Beatles. Yes, but I just can't help but think, you know, Mm If you just have played with that melody on My Sweet Lord, you would have saved yourself all sorts of problems. <laughs> and then Circles is almost a completely different melody. Yeah, well, I think the demo is, you know, not much. It's him and an organ, the original demo of Circles. Yeah. So, so he, he really had to develop that. It was very raw. Friends go, friends go. I go round and round in circles. I was impressed or or taken by the fact that a lot of these unknown songs are certainly fully developed. It's obvious that the day one demo is he'd been through with Ringo and Klaus before, because those are the three players that are there in the studio. Right. Day one is more of a band day, and day two, which we've already reviewed, is just George and his guitar. Yeah, although, you know, clearly things have been discussed, because when he demos behind that locked door which in the final version had pete drake on steel guitar he actually you know says something about pete go pete yeah he clearly already made that decision yeah he he knew that that was coming and he was just joking about it here much in the same vein of uh, the john and paul chat at the beginning of ballad of john and yoko right exactly take it ringo the the first track on the demos we've had before uh it is all things must pass which was previously available on the uh, early takes volume one this is more like i think what he presented to the beatles at first slower tempo it, it very much sounds similar to the get back stuff this is one thing we know we're going to get another version of this on the get back set nothing great this is largely just a run through right the guitar line is just a little bit different and doesn't have all the arrangements yeah orchestration and the you can't really tell but i think george is already thinking towards a big production well obviously you don't you don't present it to phil Spector if you're not thinking toward a big production <laughs> right okay the, the second track is uh, the aforementioned behind that locked door a little bit more straightforward country i think you'd feel that song the basis of it it doesn't have all the trappings yet but it's a cool song yeah i wouldn't have necessarily thought that klaus's bass playing would be as appropriate as it is 
it's a fairly simple line, but it still works as a country line. And Klaus, well, I guess he'd been in Patty Klaus and Gibson. I guess he'd been in Manfred Mann at that point. But again, neither one of those were apt to play country. <laughs> no, but, you know, that was around. If you were into early rock and roll, you'd be totally into Carl Perkins. And early rock and roll had much more country flavor than mm. it developed. And there is a version of this on early takes, but it is not this version. It's a different take from later in the sessions. Yeah, this is take two. I don't believe the one on early takes is take one. I think it's, it's probably one of the ones from later in the actual sessions. Ah, yeah. So the third track is uh, take one of I Live For You. Right, and it's less country than the version that was on the release from 2000. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised that George didn't bring that forward in, into this release. I mean, again, like the My Sweet Lord 2001, he and Danny had gone in and overdubbed just some extra material over the basic track, and they bought Pete Drake's guitar up right i know a lot of people who really like that version of the tune with pete drake oh, yeah. and it's not here so yes i like this because this is cleaner to me this pete drake part from 2000 is more derivative
the next is take one of Apple Scruffs. It's pretty close to the final version, I think. It, it is. <laughs> the lyrics aren't quite completely finished, but uh, it, it's very much, okay, here's what we're going to do. Yeah, it's uh, interesting that the song is there from the get-go. Because I had, I guess, just kind of got the impression that he wrote it during the sessions. You know, they were hanging out at Apple and at Trident. And, and so I guess I got that impression that the, the song was written from that experience. Well, and that's kind of what the Scruffs themselves said, although I guess they just really didn't know. You know, George invited them in, and, and he played it for them, and then he handed them this letter. But I guess it was just sort of their impression that he had just kind of recently written this, rather than just going into the studio and recording it. That's probably where I got the impression that that was the case. But it's there, right here, you know, day one, so take that. <laughs> okay, so so next up is uh, take three of What Is Life. Right. It's a great performance of the song. It is. It doesn't have the guitar line that goes through the song. Yet. The fuzz guitar. Well, the part that goes dun da da. Oh yeah, that, that, that's not there, and the fuzz guitar is also not there. Yes, it's maybe a little bit less rocky. Well, it's more straightforward. Certainly, it has yet to be dressed up. So it's the basic song, but it shows that the song works without all the dressing. Yeah, if you think Spectre went too far, listen to this version. <laughs> right. Track six is uh, take one of. Awaiting on You All, which was previously available uh, on early takes. It was slightly longer there. It had some uh, studio chat at the beginning, and, and it had a bit of uh, George and Ringo talking at the end, and that's been eliminated here, which is kind of sad. If you like, yeah. Awaiting for you all. Awaiting for you all, take one. One, two, one, two, three, four. Yeah. <laughs> that was all. Then it's finished. It's a nice version. It is what it is. It's the demo version of the song. It's cool. Next is uh, take two of Isn't It a Pity? Right, which may be closer to what it originally was. It's a little bit uh, soulful, but nothing's going on in it that wouldn't have been appropriate in 1966 when it was written. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of between the two versions that we get here. It's not much like the big Hey Jude version, version one. And... George's vocal is not quite right for the rock version, the version two. Yeah. That said, it strikes me that it was probably closer to the original intent of how he wrote it. And then it got developed along the way. George's guitar has some effects on it that he probably didn't do much with that may have been left over from the Beatles version. Yeah. Then Ringo's playing a much more straightforward rock than uh, really either of the two versions that we get on the, the final record. Ringo's drums start late. Isn't it a pity? Which reminded me of Hey Jude, actually. Maybe George was always starting to think that way. Maybe, or, or maybe the fact that that's how Ringo started it made George think of Hey Jude. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Track eight is take one of uh, I'd Have You Anytime. Now here there's a lot of effects on the guitar. Yes, but it doesn't have that swirl that the finished song has. It's kind of a, a different effect. Yeah, what's he doing there? It almost sounds like it's, he's going through the Leslie. Could be the Leslie. George's vocal is very much a scratch vocal. <laughs> yes. Do you like it? I like it. It's very earnest sounding. You know, it's, it's not going to be something he would put out as a finished take. Uh, and it also, it ends abruptly. It's like, yeah. and we know he had the end of the song. You know, I don't know if he just sort of screwed up and said, screw it. You know, that's enough for you to know what the song is like. But uh, yeah. it does just sort of end. Yeah, there's nothing worked out there at all. Track nine, we talked a little bit about before. You were pretty fond of it. It's the take one of I Dig Love, or, or that may be just because you don't like the finished version. <laughs> well, I have to think about that because, you know, I never cared for the finished version. It was just weird to me. And this demo, I like. It, it's what the song should be, which is very lighthearted. When it's that way, it's just kind of goofy. It makes sense. The slower version with the slicky bass and guitars and the, the drum effects just never did it for me. Yeah, this version feels like some of the songs that we would get, you know, moving on later into the 70s. Yeah. You know, almost like ABBA or something. 
just <laughs> you know, that's, that's taking it a little bit far, but but you get what I'm saying, right? It has a certain lope to it that's very 70s. And George himself, uh, there was a song that he did with Ronnie Spector called uh, "Tandoori Chicken." This recording kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Yes, that was in '71, wasn't it? That was just shortly after the All Things Sessions. Yeah, with lyrics about sending Mal Evans out for tandoori chicken <laughs> and, and a great big bottle of wine yeah to having to choose between the two versions this is my favorite because it just feels more like what the song should be the other version just sounds clever too clever too by clever, half yeah. then the other george harrison song and it makes me think of a little bit is kind of like a slowed down version of you which of course is another one that he wrote for ronnie specter yeah i guess so it is kind of simple not completely, but maybe it's just Ronnie Spector. Well, we, we won't go there. <laughs> it's a song about George enjoying random women. Maybe Ronnie Spector can be thrown in there as well. <laughs> and she was married to Phil at the time. Right. I wouldn't apply that at all. <laughs> <laughs> we move on to track 10, which is the first of the songs that didn't make the album that are on this demo disc. Yeah, this was... Uh... Going down to Golders Creek. That's been available on bootleg on the so-called John Barrett tapes, and that was this version of the song. Yeah, it's a funny little song. Uh, apparently, the original title of this song was uh, "Baby Let's Play Golders Green" as a tribute to Elvis and "Baby Let's Play House." Let's play house, yeah. yeah. Going down to Golders Green in my limousine. And Golders Green was a real place. It was. I think Bad Finger lived in Golder Screen. Seven Park Avenue is the address, they say. This doesn't quite match up with uh, his involvement with them. I don't know that you can connect the fact that the song is about Golder Screen and, and Bad Finger living there. Well, I mean, it may not have been George going down to Golder Screen. Maybe it was something that Paul told him. <laughs> yeah. But George would have had to have gone down there. I mean... He didn't just sort of say, hey, why don't you guys come here and play on my record? Get in this big blue box and play in my record. Yes. Not like he didn't know them. I also think he probably would have hung with them at least a little bit. Yeah. So I would guess that he probably is talking about himself or at least a trip down there. And it may be that it's not exactly the best area of London. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going down to Golders Green in my limousine. Am I sure I want to do that? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, his vocal is great. Doing the Elvis thing. Yeah. He's having fun. Yeah, this is the George I like. Oh, I can help it. He gets a little bit heavier in some of these other tracks that we're about to talk about here. And just as far as trivia, the other thing that Golders Green is known for is uh, there's a uh, a pretty famous crematorium, the Golders Green Crematorium. Keith Moon ended up there, Sigmund Freud, Peter Sellers. So it's a place that you might go if you're a tourist hearing that it's like well, maybe that's the whole point of going down to golden screen in my limousine well that's true i mean a hearse is a kind of a limousine isn't it <laughs> anyway track 11 is Daradoon take two is it's another sort of light-hearted george song we, we of course became familiar with it through anthology anthology mm-hmm. i wrote a number of songs Did which you? i've never recorded to this day i wrote one called Daradoon. that's the song itself it's quite playful it's a lot of fun. I, yeah. I don't know why George never bought it back. Right. That's one that would have fit real well on the Gontrapo. Okay. The quality of that song, I'm surprised that it wasn't demoed for the White Album. Well, we don't know that it wasn't. Hmm. It certainly wasn't on the Esher tapes, but that doesn't mean he didn't play it in the studio or bring it up as a possibility. Well... A question we probably never know. But, you know, I just think it's a nice song. and I certainly would have it there in place of some others. And now we know why Ringo remembered the song and Paul didn't necessarily remember it. <laughs> you, you could see them playing it in India. It's... Yeah, it's it's also interesting that it, it never came back in any of the, the Get Back jams. Yeah. George is playing Dylan tunes and playing miscellaneous other things, and he didn't bring that one up once. Who knows why it never actually sort of made its way forward, but track 12 is Georgian Krishna mode. Om Hari Om Gopala Krishna. The tune is really nice. Yeah. Guitar part. I like it a lot. And clearly, he's working in his chants a lot. I can also see why you might have said, okay, a final version of this might be a little bit of overkill. Right. Did the Radha Krishnas ever record this? Not that I know of. 
we do have a later version which was bootlegged, which has overdubs. I think Clapton's on the the later version of this song. Well, it looks like I have some things to listen to. It's out there. Track 13 is Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp, take two. Now, what's interesting about this is, as we've discussed, you know, the next day, George comes up with Everybody Nobody, and we were thinking, oh, that might be an early version of Sir Frankie Crisp because, you know, he does the Oh Poor Frankie Crisp in both songs. It's like Phil Spector was already trying to say, you know, write some different lyrics, George, and, and he came back the next day with Everybody Nobody. Huh. Well, or they may well have just been two different songs, and and George really wanted to make sure that the uh, oh poor Frankie Crisp got, got in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, if we don't do this one, we'll do that one. Yeah. Maybe he just did it uh, taking the Mickey out of himself because you could sing oh poor Frankie Crisp on all sorts of George songs. <laughs> <laughs> Could well be, but uh, those are the only two that he actually did it on: the one that he wrote it for, and then this other one. And they do share some similarity in the songs. Yes. As we said before, they're not completely the same, but they do share some chord changes. Right. Uh, Track 14 is the demo of uh, My Sweet Lord, which we had gotten previously on early takes, but the speed has been corrected. I I was a little bit surprised to A-B these two, and it's like, how did they put this out with the speed being wrong before? It's not terribly off, but it's it's off by, oh, probably uh, 2%. Hmm. As compared to what other take? It is the same take of the song here and on early takes. It's just slightly uh, slower on uh, early takes. Those things happen. It may well have been that since they knew the tuning on the guitars at this point, uh, they, they may have thought it was something else. I mean, uh, George would frequently go off of A440 intentionally. Uh, That may well be what was going on here. Well, this was a pretty straightforward version of it. The change you were talking about, the He's So Fine change, is much less pronounced here. I mean, it's sort of halfway between Billy Preston's version and and his own final version. Well, you know, tunes can be fluid. That's quite often a, a situation where, you know, an artist would record a song and... They've been playing with the the melody up until the point where they cut it. You, you can hear it in the anthology. You know when when Lennon does "Lucy in the Sky," his first take is "Picture yourself in a boat on a river." By the time they finished it, he had changed the melody a little bit. So a lot of times these artists will record the record, and everyone will get familiar with the record. But then he go, they go out on tour and they don't sing it the same way because they were always singing it differently. Or you can be Dylan and just change it every time you sing it just because. Right. And, you know, I've been listening to Jagger's takes on, on his stuff and they're not really what they were. He changes melodies a lot. The, this is true. And you do still need both versions because the early takes has... George introduces a song. My sweet lord... It would have been nice if they'd just sort of collected all this stuff somewhere and given it to us because they're giving us the tape, but they decided against that. The early takes version fades out, and here the run-through is allowed to go to its natural end. It's nice, but you do need both versions of them. Right. Well, you know, they've got to keep some stuff because they've got to continue to sell. (laughs) I I don't think there's going to come a point where they go, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's all done. Well, I mean, once the point that these things enter the public domain, that will be an interesting decision for them to make. Yeah. We've already seen that in Canada, the pre-65 recordings are all in the public domain, and UME and Apple have found a way to keep the lid on it. They are still legal releases of the pre-65 Beatles records. That's the really interesting developing thing, how we deal with copyrights going out with the and publishing rights well, publishing rights is yet another different story and no paul has not quote bought back the rights to his half of the catalog he no. signed an agreement and it's an agreement that is uh, under lock and key we don't know what's in it well it's probably the same deal he you know when he complained to michael jackson about it. it's like you know i have done pretty well for this company and the deal that I have was the very first deal that I signed when I was 21. And you would think that I would be rewarded somehow. 
So, uh, you know, it could be just an increase in royalties or. So yeah, rather than rather than taking them to court, they did come to some sort of agreement on it. Right. So Sony is still the publisher of record, but Paul, I would say, probably has a little bit more of a hand in things these days. Right, and and I think this, you know, basically about sound recordings, because Correct. because there are copyrights that are returning to him as the years pass. Well, but that was the deal was they would have returned to him. But I think he signed this deal with Sony to keep them all under one house or or almost all under one house. Yoko has actually had the rights to John's half for years because John died within the first 25 years of the songwriting. So she just sort of quietly did that. It's like there are a couple that I do want to keep control over. But for the most part, she also signed the rights back to Sony, so they administer the whole thing. They are the rights holders of record. Now, I'm sure she got a nice check over that. Probably. Sony obviously doesn't want those rights to be broken back up. Right. Makes sense. You know, there's a certain part of it is about control, and a certain part of it is about the amounts of money generated. Uh, You know, I can see that the company has an interest in keeping Paul happy. And I don't know that he needs to have that kind of power over his work anymore. He hasn't had it in 50 years. Now, George is a slightly different matter. He's the one who actually turned out to be the smartest because by the time of the White Album, it's like, okay, I'm writing more. I'm not going to stay with Northern songs with with John and Paul. I'm going to go form my own company. And he's kept control of it. Yes. He had a five-year deal, which was originally signed in 63 with Dick James. And... When it ended, he definitely did not sign back up. He created his own. Now, through the years, John and Paul did find ways to get back the rights to their solo material, but George didn't have to do that. Right. When All Things Must Pass comes out, the estate doesn't have to go and talk to anybody. It's like, we have complete control. Yes. So, okay, the the last song on this disc is Take One of Sour Milk Sea. This isn't a great take. No, beyond my feelings for the song... It just isn't right for his voice. I don't know whether he ever said he specifically wrote it for Jackie Lomax, but it's not right for his voice. Well, I think it was just something he'd written in India. I don't know if he was necessarily thinking of performing himself or giving it away, but it's just like, it's a song that I've written. Right. And then when they put Jackie Lomax on Apple, it's like, oh, this fits for you. (laughs) Right. Well, I kind of think that this version of Sour Milk Sea shows that it really isn't for George. It wouldn't have been something that could fit on the album. Well, it could have fit on the jams disc, I guess. <laughs> to balance out, it's Johnny's birthday on, on the first side. What's <laughs> 32nd version of uh, Sour Milk Sea? <laughs> right. Well, it's not my favorite. Too bad it was the last one on the, on the disc. All in all, I really like this disc. You know, yeah. We've got the two discs of demos. They're really great to have. Oh, I agree that you'll find all sorts of things. And the way music speaks to people, the things that I find that I liked or things that I didn't will be completely different for other people. So there's lots of stuff on these discs. You'll find all sorts of stuff. Yeah, uh, somewhere on Facebook, someone had asked the question, uh, had George not decided to go with the Spectre treatment, had George put out a disc more like this one, would it have been as successful? I don't know. You look at the landscape in 1970, it would have been the McCartney version of All Things Must Pass. <laughs> but the songs were there still. You know, no matter what you say, you listen to this disc, and with one or two exceptions maybe, the songs are all there and they're all really strong. Right, they are. And so when you think that this is the demos, you know, they hadn't sat down and really tackled the songs they were running through them so they would have developed with or without specter i don't see george putting out this as the finished record (laughs) which is what mccartney would have done but there's still enough of a basis there that okay you know he could have gone that route certainly if he only wanted to put out a single disc here you go And, and he's already worked out reasonably good arrangements for everything with the band you had eric in there and you just say eric and ringo and klaus and george 
there could have been a Beatles-like version of All Things Must Pass. It's an interesting concept. Had he had all these songs, you know, Phil Spector's not around, and so he's going to do a single album, more of a, you know, the kind of presentation that was kind of going around at that point. And you, know, you could pick a bunch of songs and have a great album. I don't think it would have had the impact because All Things Must Pass was epic. It was huge. It was the backstory about George being kind of pent up and having all these songs. The whole thing was huge. Was the return of Spectre really something that people were talking about at the time? I mean, of course, Spectre had put his fingerprints on Let It Be, and he had been on, you know, the Lennon record. He, the singles were out, but the album had not been out. Spectre had been, what, out of commission basically since 66 was when yep. uh, Phil S. Records uh, stopped doing things? Pretty much. After River Deep Mountain High, single crater, he really wasn't doing too much. I mean, he took it pretty hard. It's a, uh, but did the public notice? You know, was this something that people were going? Of course, it's a George Harrison album, and it's a triple LP set, so they're going to go out and buy it. But was that also part of the story that people were looking at? Well, I think it was part of it. I mean, it, there was talk. Spectre was famous, and that was part of it. But I don't know how that it played a big part. You know, when I was that age, the coverage of rock bands was still pretty much in its infancy. Rolling Stone was, what, two years old or so at that point? Two or three? Yeah. No, not three. I don't think three. And and I was coming off of, you know, what we all grew up on, which was teen fan magazines. That's where you got all the pictures of the Beatles and the stories, and they would publish stuff from Beatles Monthly. And so you got your news that way. And that was changing at that point. But... You know, I don't really recall being aware of Phil Spector's part in it other than some of the publicity. Okay. want to pick up on one thing that we uh, were talking about last week which still bothers us a little bit here <laughs> uh, we, we, we went back and we looked at what exactly is in the books from the I remember Jeep sessions right right it has documentation what it says in the book is that the initial sessions were Billy Preston sessions from March of 69 yes now, Clapton was there, and George was there, and, and Preston was there, but do you think that was the session Bobby Whitlock was saying that Billy was already on the Hammond? Or You know, I suppose that's possible. I am assuming that they are pretty certain that this is the tape that I remember Jeep came from, that, that this, they pulled this tape out of this box, and that's what they did the remaster on. It could be a mistake. Right, but I, I just don't understand how a jam session that came out of a Billy Preston session with those folks ended up being part of the John Lennon stuff. And then apparently, you know, he and Yoko overdub hand claps or something like that. So the Billy Preston session was on March the 29th. Now, apparently the box was not labeled at that point. Hmm. So, I mean, there just would have been a box with this tape in it. Hmm. Then the second thing is, as you note, on May the 12th, the box was actually labeled, and it was labeled as a Plastic Ono Bands piece called Jam Piece. Okay, was this at EMI? This was apparently at EMI, yes. And they got out of there without a, 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 with a tape box unmarked. 
in March, I guess. I, you know, maybe the March sessions weren't at EMI. But Billy Preston sessions were all at EMI, pretty much, I believe. I guess it could have been Apple Studios. Could have. Uh, yeah. So on May the 12th, this tape box actually gets labeled. And it gets labeled as Jam Piece, and it is credited to the Plastic Owner Band, which is interesting in and of itself because, well, that wasn't a name that had been used anywhere at that point. This is the first time that anyone would refer to anything as being from the Plastic Ono Band. Hmm. Well, I do recall I have a copy of a magazine from that time, and it talks about this song, Jam Piece. Oh, really? Uh-huh. So there is actually additional documentation somewhere out there there was something there you know (laughs) it's going to take a little bit of digging fair enough there's an interview regarding basically get back and the title of the article if i remember correctly was uh we need 500 songs by friday yeah yeah you mentioned that before yeah so what was going on here apparently john and yoko did some hand claps on this overdub session this is when the tape box got labeled and it was labeled as a Plastic Ono Band track. It did not get relabeled until a year later during the uh, All Things Must Pass sessions. So again, apparently the tape got pulled out. George or Phil Spector or somebody listened to it and said, that's not John, that's not the Plastic Ono Band, that's my tape. And you can actually see on the box that they have crossed out John Lennon plastic on a band and, and written George Harrison in. <laughs> what an interesting history of that song that they considered it so good that they both wanted to use it. You know, what's also interesting is that as you know, in May, the Moog wasn't in place. Right. Moog didn't show up at EMI until August of 69. So it would have had to have been, that George did the Moog overdubs during the All Things Must Pass session when this box got relabeled. <laughs> what the heck is going on here? A lot of work on that song. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it would have just had to have been the final mix down and then George playing live into it. <laughs> yeah, well. All this was just a stereo mix down that they can't do anything further with. <laughs> I remember Jeep. It is just odd. And it's it's one of those things that you get by sort of going through all the pictures in the deluxe edition of the book. Oh, and they also had an acetate made of it somewhere along the way, of the Jam Piece version. Huh. There's an acetate also labeled Jam Piece Plastic Ono Band, probably pretty soon after the May session, I would guess. Well, um, yeah, that would make sense. In the May... Early June. Somebody wanted to listen to it, and I guess if since it's pictured, I guess the acetate does still exist. <laughs> so I guess somebody somebody could play it. We can see whether the the moog was on there or not. <laughs> well, we'll have to put that question out there. Somebody play that acetate. Maybe we just need to call Danny up and have him tell us. <laughs> well, you you know people in in LA. I'm sure you can find somebody to. <laughs> He's famous, but he's not that famous. He is only George's kid. Right. All right. We'll leave you with that question. We've got one more week on All Things Must Pass, the outtakes and other miscellany. Right. Interesting things on there, too. Yep. And then then we got a little bit before the uh, Let It Be box in October. Right. We're, We're all looking forward to that. They are going to continue to tease for the next half a year. Well, the next thing that's locked in is the Ringo EP. Right. Well, but that's, again, we're only going to be reviewing three songs since we've already reviewed the first song, Let's Change the World. So, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. All things must pass. See ya. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at when they was fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, 
San Francisco, California. We were listening back to All Things Must Pass, and uh, when it started, well, to the playback, you know, and I went, <whistles> and Phil Spector said, who did that? And I was like real sheepishly, like a little kid in school, <laughs> like that thing, like Johnny Cash, uh, uh, I said, it was me. I thought he was gonna tell me to shut the fuck up, you know, and uh, he, he said, Get out on the microphone and do that. And I went down and, and tried to do it on the mic and it sounded like me whistling. I said, you need to get Pete Drake to play this, man. And sure enough, it wasn't but a matter of about three or four days later, Pete Drake showed up and they had a couple of special Pete Drake sessions. So you he were... thanked me for that years later, Pete did. I saw him in Nashville and he said, he, he, he thanked me for getting him in on the session. <laughs> Go Pete. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.